What makes a great product? Is it the hand-finished glaze on a vase? The artistry of the label on a drinks bottle? Is it the knowledge that it came from a heritage brand with the best skills in the business? Or that it was made sustainably within one country? We appreciate the items that we know have had the hands of a great craftsman or woman on them more than those that came off a factory conveyor belt. And after a period of fast fashion and mass production, it seems the customer is even more aware of where and how their things are created. This is Made in France, a celebration of the rich tradition of French craftsmanship and innovation in manufacturing. This is a country full of ateliers, workshops and schools creating at such a high level that designers from around the world seek out their expertise. Each week we'll be travelling across France to speak to designers, chefs, winemakers, teachers, milliners, ceramicists and plenty more who are making beautifully crafted items. I'm your host, Gillian Tobias. To begin our series, let's really get to grips with what Made in France means. Our Paris correspondent Sophie Grove sits down with Monocle's fashion director, Daphne Hazard, and editor-in-chief of L'Etiquette magazine, Gauthier Borsarello, to take the temperature of France's craft industry. Well, hello. We're here in a very snug basement <laughs> to talk about Made in France. I should start by asking you maybe almost a quite sentimental question. What does Made in France mean to you, Gauthier? Hello, everybody. First, <laughs> but I think the first thing that comes in my mind is craftsmanship and uh, slow business, and yeah, the fact to take the time to do the best as we used to do and as we do for centuries now in France. And we used to be called the atelier of the world, and I hope that we don't, we didn't lose it. And I think the form is changing really lately, but until the World War II, it was the same thing everywhere in France. The same. Um, know-how, the same legacy, the same way of giving a knowledge to the next generation. And we have a lot of organizations in France that are super, super old. And the key of those organizations is always the quality and the absolute quality in every different product making. Definitely. I think the Made in France is like a synonym of uh, quality. Maybe wrong or right, but as soon as you say it's made in France, you can see in the eyes of the people, the foreigners, that uh, they have sparkles in their eyes. Like uh, if it's made in France, it would be very well made. I hope it's still good. I hope it will still be right. I mean, also, I think that all the ateliers have a tendency to disappear. And that's why it makes it so precious and so rare. And also this, this propage is a propagation of this myth and this uh, dream of Made in France. I'm very lucky to be joined by two quintessentially French people, <laughs> but it struck me when I moved to Paris that there is a real appreciation for craft, almost in a quotidian way. You, people really appreciate how something's made and notice. Is that something that makes Made in France quite sort of unique in a way? Yeah, I think for a generation, we try to to teach our children and my, my father did with me to how to look at to an object and to be able to recognize the quality by how it's made. And every time with something, it's not like how it looks expensive, it's how it's super well made. And when it's super well made, it's something that you want to, to acquire and you want to keep and you want to give to your son. Or, you know, we, we love this 
this idea of legacy, I think, here. And we love to teach our children how to eat. You know, we take the quality of the Made in France is also a global lifestyle. We always eat at a table and we always take time to eat in family. And I think French lifestyle is the time. It's the time we take to make something and we take the time to use it and we take the time to stitch it and to darn it when it's used. And we take the time to live, you know, the aperitif, you know, the, the long dinner with friends and arguments until late at night. I think the definition of luxury is always time. It's the time that you take to do something or you take the time you the time you take with the people you like, the quality time with your family or friends, something extremely important. And when you go to London or to New York or to Tokyo, as a French, I feel really pressured because there is a, an emergency in the life there that we don't have here. And we try to fight to keep this slow life and we can feel it in the product we make too. Yeah. Mm. And those products are, ma are made quite slowly because it, quality have to be made very slowly. So you need, they are rare. And, and also I think French people are quite romantic and nostalgic. So they like to think about the past and what has been made in the past. So not only made in France, but made in a specific region is very important for the made in France concept. So it's made in Les Vosges or made in Savoie or made in Provence. We all have, France has its own specific territory speciality, which we're, they're very proud of. I mean, I should talk about that because really, I mean, I was in Saint-Junien recently, which was a great glove-making capital. And it was a bit heartbreaking to see how many sort of abandoned factories there were, but then heartening to see different people who are doing really well and brands that are going in and using the heritage and the savoir-faire that's there. There is Chanel in front and Hermès who are really fighting to conserve this quality super high, super, super high. And they have to find solutions to do it. And they buy artisans, they buy some ateliers. They, they do their best to be at the best all the time. And to me, they are really like leaders and they prove that you can have this quality and be big and be successful. Because sometimes when you are too extremist, like I want to do everything by hand, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, you don't do any business. But they are the proof that something extremely well-made can be super desired. Like in Switzerland, you have Patek Philippe, you have Rolex, you have all those people who are doing amazing products with a huge success. So it's possible. I mean, Daphne, France used to be a place where every, as you said, every region from Lyon, silk to the sh hats of Chassard, or, you know, there would always be a speciality. Do you think that any of those have survived? Are you seeing the revival of some of those kind of wonderful pockets of industry? I know there are some organizations and foundations that are trying to revive them or also some big groups who are buying them. I think there's an emergency to do something for those territories and especially in the knowledge, the apprentissage, the forming people. Forming formation. Because those villages, those uh, little regions, those territories are dying and and there's something something has to be done. And I know one foundation who is working on it's called Terrifis. And it's not very well known yet, but it's someone who is doing his best to redynamize the territories by helping entrepreneurs and craftsmanship, not by buying them, but by helping them either with money or with 
not only finance, it can be also expertise or things yeah. like this to help them to to survive. Daphne, I know you're a fan of some brands like Giacomus in the South and people who are, you know, younger brands that are manufacturing in France. Do you think there's there's a future for made in France with the smaller brands? Yeah, I think I think it's all about education. And if you don't educate people to know what's good and what's not good, what is plastic, what is made in in China, and what it, you can preserve it. But hopefully, there's still some young designers who are. And I think more and more, I think the youngers are going back to the quality and the made in France. Daphne, do you think that luxury should be somehow synonymous also with sustainability? Do you see luxury brands going towards that kind of idea of fixing, that idea of kind of using something to the its very last yeah. breath? I think, yeah, for sure. And I will always... Um promote that <laughs> but when you see that very big brands that doing very well are doing like 14 collections per year you wonder is that really luxury there's so many incoherence in this business that sometimes I, I really wonder what I'm doing there <laughs> but um, yes for me just paying a lot of money and buying only one jumper per year or for or maybe for every five years, but to keep it and to mend it and to ask your mom maybe to repair it uh, when there's a hole like on my jumper, which is not the best quality probably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and also I think that handmade things are much more valuable things. But I think that is French style. Every brand is like, what is French style? What is French style? But I think we are cheap people and we, we like <laughs> to buy the best. Now, honestly, I work in vintage and the, the, the vintage French, the French vintage, sorry, when you find it, it's always super down, super used and everything. When you find an American vintage, it's always mint. I don't know if you you can find like 30s or 40s jackets. They're all super mint, you know, because the guy, it's in their mindset to change the clothing every season. Like, oh, it's winter. I have to buy a winter jacket. You know, but in France, we buy the best picot and then we have it for 10 generations. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the French style and I think the charm, when I see Daphne today, she has like an amazing jumper. It should be cashmere or something really good. And there's mustache. a hole and it's faded. <laughs> and it, But it's completely on her body because she's wearing it for so long that it, it marries, you know, it uh, épouses. You know, it fits your body. It, it's molded around you. Yeah, yeah. And I think like a tweed jacket, you buy the best tweed jacket, British one, so, <laughs> and you wear it Thank until you. it dies. You know? <laughs> no, honestly. And when people say, ah, oh, what is French style for you in menswear? To me, it's like Western at the feet, 501 on the uh, 501 pants, a Saint-Jam Saint uh, sweater and a barber jacket. You know, it's not French items, but put together and worn it to death and you have a French style. And also brands that you can't recognize the brand and you can't date exactly, when yeah. it's from. I yeah. think this is the most important. Possibly, yeah, the kind of capsule French sort of philosophy of dressing could be the answer to <laughs> some of our sustainability problems in fashion. Exactly. Daphne, I've got one for you. I know you live in the Marais, a place that used to be a real centre of artisans and craft and these ateliers just everywhere. And that has disappeared. It is shrinking from cities, mm. certainly Paris. Do you think we need to be worried about that? And how do you introduce this atelier culture and preserve this atelier culture in cities like Paris? Oh, it's hard to say. It's true. They used to be in the Marais and in the 11th arrondissement in Bastille. Now they have disappeared. 
giving the place to Uniqlo and Zadig et Voltaire, <laughs> but the rents are too high yeah. and they're probably, they're probably outside of, yeah, they're for sure outside of Paris and in these regions and territories. And sometimes they, they, nobody knows them and you have to discover them, go and see the shepherd who is looking after the sheep and who's doing the best wool. And, and there are some brands like Arpenteur mm. or De Bonne Facture who are really, really, really keen on preserving that and finding those producers, which are rare. But, but I think, like, again, new generation are conscious of that. And it's sad that it disappears from the cities, but it's also good that uh, it's still outside in France, but outside Paris. Throughout this series about France, we'll be visiting the workshops of the best and most experienced ateliers that work with La Maison Chanel. Not only does this mean they get the best for their haute couture collections, but it also means that these small companies have more secure futures. Ahead on the series, we'll be meeting the pleaters, embroiderers, milliners and weavers who work with Chanel. But now we go to the outskirts of Paris, where we find Gousson, the goldsmiths who create everything from Chanel's jewellery to the chandeliers hanging in their boutiques. I'm Guinelle Créalet and I'm the managing director of Gossons. So the company was founded in the 50s by Robert Gossens, who was an incredible artisan and was the personal jeweler of Gabriel Chanel. His vision was really to give birth to any crazy idea Gabriel Chanel may have. Either it was copying a, a, an antique a piece she had seen in a museum or mixing real stones with fake stone and, and brass. Any idea she may have, he will, he will try to, to find a way to make it happen. Most of the model makers in my team have been here for the last 30 years. And when someone is new in the team, he has already been here for 10 years. And after 10 years, you're, you're good, but you still have a lot to learn. The amazing thing here is that we have a lot of persons who have been trained by Robert himself. So this very specific know-how, this hand, which is really specific to the company, is still really present. We use exactly the same techniques. Innovation has always been in the DNA of the brand. And talking about the vision of Robert Gossens, he had always in mind to be the first one to try things. He was the first one to incorporate wood, leather, shell in costume jewelry. And uh, now we, we, we are facing the same challenges. We are trying to incorporate innovation in our jewelry. So we work a lot more with 3D, 3D design, 3D scanning. For example, when, when now we sculpt the head of a lion, for example, for a jewel, and we want it in different scales. So it's, it's really interesting to see that now we're in a situation where we can leverage this very traditional know-how, but incorporate technology to uh, go even further. And here we have the model makers sculpting the jewel. People are fed up of fast fashion. They want something that will last, that they will even give to their own daughter. And that's, I think, what 
touches people when they buy a jewel from Gossens is that they understand they're buying something which is the result of a long tradition of jewelry and they know that it's something really special, it's a piece of art. I worked in the U.S. for a while, and and I was really willing to to come back to France because I was I was missing this craftsmanship, which is really unique and and specific to France. Because I think we had the the intelligence, and I mean it's it's really Chanel, and we had the intelligence to protect and nurture this craftsmanship by by buying these companies when they've been jeopardized. And now we see this situation where we have clients from from the U.S., from U.K. coming to France because they can't find this craftsmanship in their countries and, and they want to work with French workers where, where they can find uh, what disappeared in their countries. From the experts, we now go to the next generation of craft in France. Back in central Paris, along Place de la Bastille, you'll find Rue Faubourg-Saint-Antoine. For centuries, this neighbourhood has been known as the furniture area of the city. Since the late 1700s, it's been associated with the trade of wood, with skilled carpenters from across Europe moving in and calling it their home. During the 19th century, Faubourg Saint-Antoine was the largest furniture manufacturing centre in all of France, with entrepreneurs, artisans and factory workers flooding in to seek work and perfect their craft. So it only seemed appropriate that in 1886, the country's craftsmanship school of excellence, École Boulle, decided to call this neighbourhood its home. We sent Monocle's Carlotta Ribello along to meet the school's director, Josiane Giamerinaro, for a lesson in craft. École Boulle was founded in uh, 1886 and it's named after the cabinet marker André Charles Boulle is organized in three departments, design, craft, and construction projects management, leading to a common goal, implete mean creative strategy to conceive, develop and make products, space, services, events for mass production, small series, or even unique pieces. Today, Ecole Boulle remains a household name among the schools of fine arts and crafts in Europe, and it's mainly due to its connection with the luxury sector and how it still puts the emphasis in teaching students how to make high-end products from start to finish. I think in the beginning of the school, all these uh, specialty crafts, the French crafts, are around uh, the Europe. It was uh, traditional. And now, these crafts uh, are needed in the... Um, the luxury, French luxury. We work with Chanel, with Hermès, Hermès, because it's a traditional uh, how, how to do. Because uh, they understand now what is um, the quality of this tradition. Are you fearful or scared that it might get lost if it wasn't for you know, brands picking up this tradition. I think we need a brand for the, the craft because uh, crafts are very um, expensive, you know. This quality is very expensive. So if we haven't um, order of this brand, uh, maybe we lost uh, this, uh, this craft, yes. What needs to change then? First, education, more exhibition, we have in France now many things for show to the public uh, the craft and the education of the craft. But after, it's, it's, uh, it's an education and also the cost of the craft. 
In total, over a thousand students and 150 teachers roamed the different workshops, classrooms and corridors of École Boulle. And for Josiane, part of its success over the last few centuries lies in the community created between both. Each teacher in the workshops, they all are students of this school. This is the tradition of the school. Yes, it's very uh, special in this school. But we have also uh, all students of the school who are professors today and they are very um, engaged in the, in, the, in the innovation for to change the, the school. When people talk about you know, craftsmanship and crafts, mm-hmm. most people just describe it, oh, it's making things. Mm-hmm. How would you describe it? It's not making things. No, no. <laughs> no, it's not making things. It's, um, it's a concept, an idea, it's uh, the story, the history of the, the art. It's how to draw the savoir-faire, know-how, because it's a process more uh, uh, sophisticated. And it's uh, very many, many times. You know, uh, the teacher said for, for to have a good hand, you, are, you, you take 10 years for a good hand. Yeah. You know, it's a long, uh, a long travel, a long travel, yes. Today is the first day of a new workshop happening at Ecole Boulle. They are mixing students from the design and crafts fields and teaching them how to work with a specific material. This year, it's all about plastic. Lucinda Canton is one of the teachers at Ecole Boulle and she took me on a little tour. Now we have like majors and minors, majors in design on one side and majors in craftwork on the other. And they all also have some, they have some common subjects. But today, this is really for us, this is a revolution because all these majors in design and majors in craftsmanship are all together and they're all, as you can see, collaborating, inventing things. In fact, the idea is to use plastic to design, like we said, either a unique object or a, ma- a potentially mass-produced object or some kind of, it could be also an installation for an event, for example. Oh, nice. So it's very, um, very varied. And We're walking up to the top floor of the school and on the way, we stop by the jewellery workshop where students are working on different pieces. Now we're headed towards the wood and furniture restoration rooms. Lucinda tells me how due to the school's partnerships with cultural institutions, students end up not only working on their own creations, but also doing restoration works for museums such as Le Louvre or Le Musée des Arts Décoratifs. They have to follow a very rigorous, rigorous procedure, first of all like a diagnostic of what's wrong with the piece of furniture, which they then have to transmit to the museum officials who will then examine it and see if they agree with the work that's going to be done. So even if it's students who are doing the work, it's always very controlled. Over 130 years since it first opened its doors, École Boulle is alive and well. It's ensuring that there are future generations of French artisans who have this traditional know-how to anchor new innovation and invention. For Monocle in Paris, I'm Carlotta Ribello. To end the programme each week, we'll hear from various Monocle staff about the French products they love. From kitchenware to items of clothing and even children's toys, we'll be navigating French craft from the point of view of the user. This week, Monocle's Daphne Carnesis explains why the Peugeot pepper mill on her kitchen table also has a place in her heart.
In all the apartments I've moved to and from over the last few years, there's one kitchen utensil that stuck, my Peugeot Peppermill. With a beechwood body and silver-plated metal at either end, it's a piece of tableware that I'll happily show off at any dinner table. I've seen my fair share of gimmicky kitchen tools, from the Gator grater and Nessie the soup ladle to the parrot-shaped corkscrew, but I'm a firm believer that classic is best. Why does a peppermill matter, you ask? They say freshly ground spices are all the more aromatic, and while I'm no expert, I'm a fan of this particular peppermill's feature to adjust the pepper's coarseness using the little knob on top, from crushed corns for steak to a fine dust for delicate sauces. It was only recently, though, that I discovered my peppermill had an interesting story behind it, too. Across the object is the outline of a lion, Peugeot's logo, which I found out is the very company that invented the first peppermill in 1874. Yes, the same company that manufactures cars and bicycles. But the link isn't as far off as you'd think. I decided to dig a little deeper into this seemingly everyday object's intriguing history. In the early 19th century, brothers Jean-Pierre and Jean-Frédéric Peugeot converted their flour mill into a steel mill in the northeast of France. From there, the company invented salt and pepper grinders, which it patented in the 19th century, decades before it even got going on cars. To this day, there are chefs who swear by Peugeot pepper mills and refuse to use anything but. The iconic turned wood casing gives it a timeless quality, almost baroque, although it was once remarked that it looked as though they'd broken a leg off a chair. Throughout the years, Peugeot managed to repeatedly convert its technical know-how into design innovations. The helix-shaped teeth that grip the peppercorns while they're ground is the very mechanism that helps a car's wheels spin fast. But it would take eight decades before Peugeot applied this technology to the manufacture of cars. Their crinoline dresses, too, use the same steel rods later applied to their umbrella frames, saw blades, chisels, wire wheels and bicycles. Peugeot introduced its first penny farthing in 1882, followed by a series of other bicycles. This diverse product range all harnessed the same steel technology, skills and knowledge. A few years later, in 1889, the first Peugeot automobile was produced, a three-wheeled steam-powered car. Now, each time I grind pepper over my steak or place the mill on a just-laid table, I'm reminded that this simple mechanism developed by two brothers in 19th century France was the start of something much bigger. That brings us to the end of this first episode of Made in France. Join us next week when we'll be roaming around the country in search of more great artisanship. Be sure to check out our sister programme, Métier Class, where you can hear one of the final interviews with the fashion label's late art director, Carl Lagerfeld. You can download it from monocle.com or from your favourite audio source. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and Tom Edwards, and thanks to Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Colotto Rubello, Daphne Azar and Sophie Grove. I'm Gillian Tobias. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.